Hi, welcome back to another episode of A Study in Granada, where a Sherlock Holmes fan, if not expert, Mike Noel, Hello. who's who's not me, and me, who is a Sherlock Holmes fan, but relative novice, go through the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes series from Granada Television, well, broadcast on ITV in the 80s and 90s, and read the stories along with them. Thanks for joining us again. This time, we're looking at The Greek Interpreter and the story it was based on. Yeah, uh... I feel very safe for for a number of reasons. I feel very safe in comparing this to the Naval Treaty in that it's very boring and really didn't need to be a 50-minute episode. No. So, Naval Treaty is fine. Maybe not great, but fine. This is the first episode where I'm like, wow, this is actually kind of not a good episode. You and I talked very briefly about this the other day, just that the Naval Treaty, there's at least people for them to go talk to. This one, it's very much like, well, I'm going to send out some telegraphs and then we'll just chill i guess for a while then it's immediately they chill for like 10 15 minutes and then it's oh we gotta go to this house oh we gotta get on this train uh, you know there's not really anything to be done except run down the villains there's no deductions to be drawn really and while there are relatively well done tension scenes with some of the stuff that's happening they kind of go on for a while and we'll get into that more but this episode like i said does not need to be 15 minutes you could do this in half an hour if you wanted to this could have been an episode of wishbone <laughs> Uh, they did do a Sherlock Holmes episode. So this episode, we begin with Dr. Watson learning of the existence of an elder Holmes brother, Mycroft Holmes, who calls Sherlock to put before him the unsettling events Mr. Melos, a Greek interpreter, has found himself involved in. And Mr. Latimer came to enlist his services and shoved him in a coach without allowing him to know where he was taken to. Upon their arrival, Melos discovers the appalling master of the house, Kemp, and a gagged captive. Kemp wants his unfortunate Greek prisoner, Paul Kurtides, to sign a mysterious document and is in need of Melos' help to translate his questions in Greek and Kurtides' answers in English. During this disquieting scene, Melos catches a glimpse of Kurtides' sister, Sophia. Kurtides remaining inflexible in his resolve, Latimer shoves Melos back in the coach and throws him to the street in an unknown area. We meet Mycroft Holmes, the celebrated famous brother of i guess not famous like in, in, for fans the famous brother of sherlock yeah. holmes he's a staple of basically every sherlock holmes adaption played here by charles gray who most people will know as the criminologist in the rocky horror picture show or um he also plays henderson in you only live twice and Ernst stavro blofeld in uh diamonds are forever the james bond movies he's done a lot of things a lot of good things mm -hmm. He's also done this. I liked him in this. I wasn't a huge fan. It might just be the episode direction. I might not be the mm -hmm. actor himself, but I feel like he lacked an energy. Like I feel like the character fell asleep a few times. Which... I, I mean, that is, though, in, in the, the classical take of Mycroft, that is, he's lack of energy, famously. I know that... <laughs> I know that you hated this episode enough, or did not like this episode enough, that I told you to basically just read up until they meet Mycroft and then read the last page, because the story is pretty much the exact same like as the episode. They do talk about in there, Holmes says that basically if the art of the detective could be achieved from an armchair, then Mycroft Holmes would be the greatest criminal agent the world has ever known. It's just that he has no energy. He's very lethargic, and I, I, I get what you're saying, and I and I understand how that kind of could turn a person off of the character. I think that it is in character for Mycroft to be low energy. It definitely is in character, but the way they did it felt, I guess, more comical than it, 
it felt more like, oh, he's a bumble- he's a bumbling lethargic man who has this great mind, as opposed to he's a he has a great mind, but he has a tragic flaw of being very lethargic. Yeah, he, he didn't have the same gravitas that I kind of the show usually mm-hmm. has. A lot of uh, adaptations have Mycroft as either being very serious or not serious almost at all. The three examples of Mycroft Holmes that come to mind immediately are Mark Gaddis in Sherlock, and he's like very serious. All lives end. All hearts are broken. Caring is not an advantage. Stephen Fry in the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies where he's very not serious. You know, although our time together has been but a brief interlude, I'm beginning to understand how a man of particular disposition under certain circumstances, extreme ones perhaps, uh, might grow to enjoy the company of a, of a, um, a person of, of, of your gender. And then Charles Gray in this, who I think is probably the most middle ground because he does have serious moments, but a lot of his stuff is more for comedy. Sherlock has all the energy of the family. Will you take up the case by all means and let me know if you do any good? That's fair. And I guess I am comparing him to Mark Gaddis, which is maybe not fair, but I think Mark Gaddis is the best part of the BBC Sherlock mm-hmm. series about from Molly Hooper. I'm sorry, um, you, I, you did forget Mrs. Hudson in there. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it goes Mrs. Hudson, Molly Hooper, then Mark Gaddis is Mycroft okay. Holmes. Mostly because Mycroft Holmes in that is a really good foil to their character of mm-hmm. Sherlock. And I think that works really well. We're not there. talking about that Sherlock. We're talking about St. Jeremy Brent. Yeah, sorry. I'm getting off track, yeah. I think I do want to talk about, while we're here, though, this is in both the story and the episode, there's a line where Sherlock implies that his uh, remarkable powers of deduction are genetic. My singular gift for observation and deduction may have come from my grandmother, who was a sister of Vernet, the French artist. It's Victorian nonsense science where being smart is genetic. That's just a staple of the genre. But I like that because she was an artist, her smartness manifests oddly. Your art in the blood is liable to take the strangest forms. As someone who's played a lot of D&D and loves the Sorcerer class, where your draconic or fairy bloodline gives you magic powers, I like the idea that having an artist in your bloodline gives you magic deduction power. (laughs) That's the name of my uh, Sherlock Holmes cover band, Magic Deduction Powers. The case of Lady Carfax that did have some bizarre facts. Awesome. Actually, I have better ones, but those are spoilers for upcoming episodes, because I've watched a little bit ahead than you. Oh, oh, sure. Also, you know, for 20 years, I've watched a little bit ahead. So you've had cover names for centuries. I want to talk about, because they meet Mycroft, and they engage in what I called the sport of Holmesing, Mm. where they walk into his rooms in the Diogenes Club, which, first of all, what a great name for a place. The Diogenes Club. The Diogenes Diogenes Club. The Diogenes Club. Uh, don't, you know, it's all right. You, calm down, Jackson. What? I, no, I, I said, it's a great name for a club. And I he just went, hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I was checking up my notes. No, it's okay. I, I wasn't expecting you to like, oh my God, yeah. But it was just, I said that. I was like, huh. Uh, I, don't, I don't get it though. Like, is there a, like a thing with that? I believed in the Greek myth, Diogenes was traveling through hell with a lantern to look for an honest man or something. Oh, okay, sure. I did a quick... Google search and Diogenes was a Greek philosopher and one of the founders of Cynic philosophy. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's two really good descriptions 
uh, one of the story one of the episode. In the story, it's described as the queerest club in London, and Mycroft is one of the queerest men. So, uh, you know, yeah, what up? This man is gay and European. On the flip side, in the episode, it's described as. But what are the qualifications for the Diogenes Club? Shyness and misanthropy. My brother is one of the founder members. Which tells you all you need to know about the club and Mycroft right there. That's yeah. a really good statement of purpose. So as they enter his rooms, he's sitting at the window. And in the story, he's standing. It doesn't really matter. I only mention this difference because in the episode, it's almost like a tennis umpire chair. There's like three steps that lead up to the top of this very flat stool. And he's sitting there leaning on the window looking out. And he waves Holmes over. And so Holmes scales the second one next to him. And they're both sitting there looking out the window doing the Holmes deduction thing. Almost in tandem. It's almost like a two-person act. Of, oh, yes. An old soldier, I perceive. And very recently distraught. Served in India, I see. And a non-commissioned officer. Run artillery, I fancy. And a widower. With a child. Children, my dear boy. Children. <laughs> collectively deducing this guy's life and the look on watson's face is so great it's just this awe of like oh no now there's two of them and he's so excited about it too he likes watching holmes do his thing and now he's seeing it in stereo <laughs> it's like um when you think of jimmy olsen like early jimmy olsen when he's just like a kid following superman around like gee wellikers so we're introduced to Mr. Melos, who is a Greek interpreter, and who I'm going to say now I'm pretty sure is going to take musclash away from because holy shit. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, the mustache is a very kind of bushy, pointy at the edge, like points out past the his face to the sides. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a very bad job of this. Uh, very bushy mustache that comes to fine points, but like very far away from his face. That's about the best I'm going to get, I think. <laughs> Yeah. It's also very crisp. He puts a lot of work into like making sure it's a, a very smooth line above his face. And then his beard, though, is like this weird wedge of hair. The way it's sculpted is just like, I feel like if you took your hand and just kind of put it over your chin like this. Yeah, like your palm all the way down around I'm sure your everybody chin. at home can see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm just trying to describe it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's also very like, sharp and pristine and like, juts out really well. It, it makes his chin stronger, just because of how we assume things about chins and strength and stuff. And he tells them the story of how he was hired by this Mr. Latimer, put in a carriage that he couldn't see anything, and driven basically for two hours, round and around in various ways so that he could never find out where he was, and brought to this what appears to be an abandoned house and made to interpret for them as they extorted this prisoner into signing some papers. And let's talk about his plan here. They had covered the man's face in like strips of plaster and a big bunch of it over his mouth so he couldn't talk so what they would do is they'd have mr melos say what they wanted in greek and then the prisoner would write on this very small chalkboard his replies and then mr melos would translate that back into english for them so after a little while mr melos had the very brilliant idea of because none of them spoke any greek he just started slipping in a little extra things like who are you how long have you been here like that to try to get a picture of it and i just think that that is a dumb plan if jackson and i were having a conversation and like i was speaking to jackson and then they were writing out their answer in dancing men and eventually started adding extra things on it i'd start to recognize now hold on a minute that's not the way it was last time i just i feel like they even if they couldn't tell what was happening they'd be able to figure out that they were being betrayed because we don't really have blow by blow detail for that we can't know how clever or foolish he was being with that it definitely has a lot of room to go wrong but 
I appreciate Melos for being like, hey, here's a solution. Here's a way oh, I yeah. can help that. I'm very attached to Melos as a character. While I think the episode isn't strong, I like that Melos is this very brave guy who doesn't have like a background that necessarily requires bravery. It's just sure. he's a he's a translator, but he's finding ways to help this person in distress and finding ways to use his unique skills to do things. And later, the bad guys will be like, if you speak to anyone about this, may God have mercy. On your soul. And Melos like, okay, cool. Immediately goes to Holmes and be like, be like, hey, this guy's in trouble. We gotta save him. Yeah, and uh, in the story, and I don't, I don't know if in the episode they touch on it to this amount of detail, but Mycroft lives across the street from the Diogenes Club, and Mister Melos lives like right above him, and they pass each other in the hallway, and Melos is like, oh yeah, uh, I have something for you. Hmm. I agree that the plan is a high likelihood of going wrong, but I also can't think of a lot of better options. And the the villains didn't seem to notice, so they're yeah. kind of, they're more about intimidation, less about chicanery. That's how I want my life to be described. Actually, the reverse. More about chicanery, less about intimidation. <laughs> Holmes and Watson assume that Sophia Critides, while staying in Great Britain, fell in love with Latimer. Worried, her brother and guardian Paul hurried to London, but was abducted and confined to make him sign a document allowing Latimer to get his hands on Sophia's fortune. Thanks to an advertisement placed in the papers, Mycroft gets Sophia's address and Sherlock rushes to the Myrtles, Beckenham, with his brother and Watson. They plan to pick Malus up at his place, but Kemp, aware that the Greek interpreter has betrayed his secret, has abducted him. Watson, Inspector Gregson, and the Holmes brothers arrive at the Myrtles just in time to save Melos from asphyxiation, for Cretides is dead, and the villains have flown, taking the girl with them. I'm actually kind of torn on this point, because Watson actually basically comes up with the theory. And, like, Holmes has also already thought of it, but it's one where, like, Watson gets it, like, 90% right for maybe the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Which I like that Watson gets to actually get this one right. However, it's one of the simpler ones, and it's also mostly just because I don't think Conan Doyle gave much of a shit at this point anymore. Right, this is what, the story before the penultimate story that he was trying to write? Yeah, so the final problem was meant to be the last Sherlock Holmes story. This one, there's only one story between this and that one, and that story is the Naval Treaty, which we famously slagged off for being, obviously, Conan Doyle just didn't care anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that this suffers the same, as I said before, as the Naval Treaty for that. It's just a lot of, like, here is every detail of my story, and then, all right, well, I'll do, like, one or two small things, and then, ta-da! Also, we'll get to other stuff in a second, but let's talk about how the way he figures out where this house is, which you think would be the big deduction of, you know, finding tiny clues of where it could have been. Someone tells him. He put an ad in the newspaper saying, hey, if anybody knows where Sophia Critides is, give me a call. That should be the great deduction scene. That should be like, hey, we have Mycroft and Sherlock together. They can solve this incredible question that should be unanswerable. Yeah, I feel like because it was two hours, like that's one reason why you could say like, no, that's even that's too much. But if you have two Holmeses and one of them is supposed to be far superior to the one that we know of to be this amazing deduction person. I mean, it might take him a day to do it, but it just, knowing that this is so close to the end, in quotes, I feel like you can see the fingerprints of just don't care anymore all over it. I mean, his great Greek character, Paul Cratides. And I mean, this episode, we've talked about how you could do it in 30 minutes, but they have 50 minutes to fill. If you wanted to fluff that out a bit, maybe add in a scene or two where Mycroft and Holmes figure out where this house is. That could be a really good way to fill out the episode, you know. Obviously, they don't want to add things to the episode out of nowhere that would be extraneous and would 
kind of mess with the plot, that would be bad. Yeah, like adding scenes, I don't know, like just entirely hypothetically, an entirely extended train sequence. That would be ludicrous. Yeah, or one where Holmes prevents two whole people from keeping a man from being crushed to death by an oncoming train. Yeah. But we're spoiling things a little bit. Before we get there, uh, let's talk about how Watson got to be a doctor. In the episode, they get to the Myrtles, and they find, basically, it's it's Paul Curtides and Mr. Mouse have been locked in this room with a decanter of sulfur. Decanter's not the mm-hmm. right word, but it just sounded fun to say. Catholic church okay. incense thing. <laughs> I love Google. Thurible. Thurible? Thurible is also a good word. They get to the Myrtles, and they find Paul Curtides and Mr. Mouse locked in there with a thurible of sulfur. Basically, just choking them in the room and so they rush in and they drag them out and basically watson starts tending to mr melos because paul Curtides has died of asphyxiation must have been dead about four hours the gas made itself as a coup de grace <laughs> am i not right dr watson and i like that he deferred to watson on this these are the holmes brothers obviously they probably know what's up but it's like well no watson's the doctor like obviously we'll we'll defer to watson's opinion like it looks like this to my trained i guess trained in quotes i but you are a doctor so we'll defer to you on that and it's also just as a writing thing a good way to make characters figuring things out external instead of internal as a person who leads the charge on watson should be good and useful this is one of those moments where i definitely feel like i could point back in time to when little mike Knoll started forming this opinion was a moment like that where they were like you're a doctor what do you think yeah they rush off to catch the bad guys but um they're like we can't bring melas with us he's like near death he's at zero hit points and watson tells one of the police officers and he will need your help little brandy and ammonia at frequent intervals as a restorative i guess <laughs> yeah which i'm not sure how that fares in modern medicine but at the time their medicine was some smelling salts and prayer so i get it i mean yeah everybody was pretty much drunk 24 7 fortunately we have a real doctor here would you like some heroin I want to bring up a point that I, again, if you cast your mind all the way back to the first day of this podcast, you'll recall that I mentioned how Holmes and Watson are generally willing to kind of politely avoid eye contact with the law when they need to. (laughs) They basically invaded Irene Adler's home. The speckled band, they were just like, oh, that guy's gone. All right, we'll show up and like poke around. I mean, even the Copper Beaches, when it was like somebody's in danger, we're we're going in. And on this one, instead it was like, well, we got to get the proper warrants, obviously. And they sat at the police station for like an hour. And Holmes is like chomping at the bit and is getting really pissed that they're wasting so much time. We should have been here sooner than Spectre. But also at no point was he like, I could just leave and go. And I mean, this is not like the Iron Adder thing or even the Speckled Band thing. In Speckled Band, there's a reasonable risk to this person, but it's not like definite and immediate. Whereas with this, it's like, this is going to happen in the next hour or two. Seconds matter. Even has a line. Can you not find a magistrate to sign this warrant for us? At this hour. And Sherlock is like, at this very minute. A good line. So... There's all this urgency that just doesn't go anywhere. It didn't need to be 15 minutes. I know we keep coming back to that, but I feel like we can trace pretty much every frustration with this story back to the fact that they, much like Naval Treaty, had to fill 50 minutes, and they didn't really have anything to fill it with, except a made-up train sequence. Yeah, and even some of the other shots, like there's a, a bit where they're bringing Mr. Melas out of a carriage, and they linger on the shots of the carriage an extra second or two, and I feel like there's a lot of shots where when you should cut was about two to five seconds ago, and they 
just gotta like push it a little further mm-hmm. just to fill the runtime. There is a weird thing that happened in this episode that's not in the story where Sherlock deduces that Sophie was in on some of this, that she was a somewhat willing accomplice of the money plan. Mycroft asks, You'll still retain your low opinion of women. And Sherlock doesn't disagree too much with him, which is weird given a scandal in Bohemia happened a season ago. I guess I hadn't really thought about that. or no, I didn't even notice that, really. I don't know if his opinion of women really changed. I mean, I think it was more that he just realized that, not to, not to use words, not all women. <laughs> yeah. Still most women in his eyes. He wasn't now a reformed, like, I don't, I'm not explaining it. Or- no, I get you. Like, he wasn't, he didn't undo sexism overnight, I feel like it's weird that there's no unpacking of that line in the show that has had, what, like, four hashtag strong women in seven episodes? Yeah, I, I just, I feel like the Irene Adler thing was supposed to be more of, like, Holmes recognizing that there are extraordinary women out there, and Irene Adler chief among them, but much like we talk about Holmes and Mycroft, there are only two people, so, like, just because they're extraordinary doesn't mean Watson now thinks all men are extraordinary. Ah, uh, yeah, you. But it is a good point that they didn't really parse that. This was only in the show. Yeah, the only, only in the show. That leads into other problems that we're about to get into. So what happens next in the show? Because this is basically where the story ends. Yeah, the story's pretty much over at this point. But in the episode, Sherlock and his companions succeed in boarding the runaway's train. Having found Latimer, the detective tells him Malos is alive and will testify against him. The criminal tries to escape by jumping from the train, but is killed by an express. Meanwhile, Mycroft has cunningly disarmed Kemp, who is handed over to the police. Along with Sophia Kratides, who was in on it, I guess, or just decided that it was fine once she found out what the real plan was. Because she was in love with Latimer, I guess? What, what do you see in this guy? He's like a rat in the form of a tall man. He kind of makes me think of, from The Solitary Cyclist, the red-haired guy, and I described him as it looks like somebody glued a beard onto a 12-year-old, and I feel like Latimer looks like somebody just gave a very smart pencil-thin mustache to like a 12-year-old kid and just put him on the train. It's weird, and we'll probably get into a little bit more, but in the story, they just get away, and then later we find out there was a newspaper article where the two men were stabbed, and they're like, oh, they probably fought over the money, but Sherlock deduces or assumes that Sophie could probably tell you more about that if they were found her, mm-hmm. implying that she killed these men in to avenge her brother, which is so much better. I have a soft spot for, I guess, justified murder, or <laughs> especially, like, women taking the law into their own hands because they know that the real law can't. Uh-huh. It's so shitty that they, like, made this character a villain when she could have been this fairly cool anti-hero. On the one hand, I could understand the writers wanting to inject any kind of energy here at the end, other than a very, as you put, low-energy episode, and then... Yep. Oh, they got away. Oh, and she killed him later. Okay, bye. Like they wanted a little bit more action, so they had, we had the train scene where one of them ends up getting killed. Like this, a, a s- similar form of justice of what, at least one of them dying, but that we get to see and enjoy. You know what I mean? Like we get the satisfaction yeah. of seeing it. I guess more not like actually enjoy watching him get murdered or killed by that train, but more the idea of like. On screen, we see the justice being done. The death of Latimer isn't super satisfying to me, though. Like, I mean, broadly, yes, like in an abstract, but in the moment, it's just sort of him hanging off the side of the train (laughs) while Holmes stands there preventing Watson and Sophia from saving him and lets him die. And that seems unnecessarily cruel for Holmes. It could be argued that he thought if they tried to save him, they'd also fall out. He was Mm, trying to keep them back, like to protect them, not necessarily just like, no, let him go. But 
there is still an element of like they just watched a man die i think david burke really sells kind of the horror the look on his face after that happens is just this very like shell shock oh shit yeah like an awful lot of them didn't deserve it but it seems unnecessarily grim for mm-hmm. an episode that maybe was already kind of on the grim side I don't know what part of kidnapping a man and starving him and abusing him and making him sign over the rights to his sister's fortune and then killing him by asphyxiation and then running away with her on a train is particularly grim to you, but okay. (laughs) So the episode ends with Sophia being led away by the authorities along with Kemp, and it's sort of this slightly sad, grim note. Usually these episodes have kind of a a bit of levity at the end, like there's some wrap-up with Holmes and Watson having resolved some question or making some joke that was started at the beginning of the episode or whatever, and here it just ends on this, things are sad. Last season we talked at the end about why did they pick these mysteries. Mm, My thinking so far on this season, looking at what we've already seen, and what we're about to see, and obviously with the final problem coming up, my take is they're trying to build a tense season because it ends arguably with the death of Sherlock Holmes. They're building a dour and morose tone for the season to really get you in the mind space for that. That makes sense, I guess. Oh, speaking of build-up, because you've let me know that that's coming, so Moriarty's coming this season, mm-hmm. there's a line in the story and the episode where Watson finds out about Mycroft and how Holmes considers him a greater mind even than he, and mm-hmm. he says, But if there is another man in England with such singular powers, how is it that neither the police nor the public have ever heard of him, let alone myself? It's talking about Mycroft, but also I assume mm-hmm. that, like in most stories, Moriarty is going to be of a level with Sherlock Holmes, you know, the the Napoleon of crime. That's kind of setting up this idea that there's more of them out there than you know of. I want to draw your attention back, and the only reason I remember this is because I just finished editing the Naval Treaty. There is a point where you mentioned in that episode... The idea that Watson has a bit of inferiority complex from being around the smartest man in England would be a really, like, cool thing to to dig into. I I feel like you're going to be like, well, actually, he's not the smartest man, which, fair enough. I know, I wasn't. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's not a thing that I would like. Actually, I think you'll find. Although, you will find, (laughs) now that I'm thinking about it. We'll get to that when we come to it. And this is where we get back to that, because technically, theoretically, Holmes has said Mycroft is the power. So, for all of our hardcore fans who've been waiting for that payoff, there it is. (laughs) Holmes says, I cannot agree with those that rank modesty among the virtues. To the logician, everything should be seen exactly as it is. And to underestimate oneself is as much a departure from the truth as to exaggerate one's own ability. What I've just told you about my brother is the exact and literal truth. A good Sherlock's character thing. Yeah, and also, almost like a way of Doyle saying, don't at me, nerds. Yeah. No, it's not just an opinion. He said it because it's true, so don't write me letters. (laughs) So I have here in my notes a little monograph that we return to the Watson monologue intro here, where if you'll remember in season one, the first like two or three episodes opened with Watson doing a small monologue like i think the actual text of the story opening is being espoused by watson and then we didn't have that for a long time and suddenly we returned to it here because you got to introduce the idea that watson for a while thought that sherlock had no relations but the specific way he describes it as i sometimes found myself regarding him as an isolated phenomenon makes me think that he thinks that holmes sprung up out of the earth or like yeah. from the thigh of zeus or whatever you know just like this not someone who was born but merely a, a manifestation of british it is he we knew the child would come he's been promised us for so long 
Oh, another small monograph I have here is the recognition of Watson and Holmes by Watson's name alone when they're on the train and they accost Latimer and Sophia in in their car. He doesn't know who they are. And then Holmes name drops Dr. Watson and the guy's eyes just get like real big. And then he looks over at Holmes, like realizing exactly who they are. And I like, I like that as a note. Dr. Watson is as famous as Sherlock Holmes to people. It's not just like he writes the stories and no one really knows who he is. Like he is, his name is just as famous. That was a good bit. See, we can find good things in this episode. And I like the occasional interactions with Holmes's fame because these stories are being published in universe as Ooh. we're going. All right. I think that we're going to, we're going <laughs> to. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> for the formality of it, must clash. We agree. Mr. Melos is this episode's oh, sure. winner. And then he goes up against Dr. John Watson. And I honestly, we already yeah. seem to have settled on it. But so Mr. Melos takes the top position in season two of Must Clash. Jackson, do you have anything you want to plug? As always, I'm half of Gratuitous Pausing. We're on Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, other places. If you search us, you'll find us. We talk about movies and we're wrapping up our Disney bracket and or getting to our comics bracket whenever this is going out. I'm also part of another podcast. It's called The Equalizers, where we take movies that never got a sequel or prequel because they were either too good and didn't need one or they were too bad and didn't deserve one and we give them one by the time this is out most likely we will have long since gotten through um, the a team too so keep your eye out for that we're on itunes basically anywhere online that you find podcasts by searching the equalizers and we spell it e-q-u-e-l-i-z-e-r-s like in sequel now jackson next week we have an interesting one as special guest Madison Jones comes to write up our will in The Norwood Builder. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. We're rare to meet thy go.